Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. Listeners know that we explore many realms of the human journey, and some of our podcasts, including some of my favorites, delve into wisdom traditions, sometimes ancient writings or teachings that arise from a variety of backgrounds, sources that help us to focus on truths that really matter. And a lot of this boils down to connecting to something bigger than ourselves, to see that we're all part of some mysterious river of meaning, that the whole is truly greater than the sum of its parts. When I can get calm and touch that inner place of quietude, it points me homeward. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a special grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. I sort of feel as though the real party started when I started doing this because I stopped having to hide and I got to find out what it was to be true to myself. How Alcoholics Anonymous has helped people stay sober and begin their search for underlying causes of addiction. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. recent survey found more than 100,000 Alcoholics Anonymous groups worldwide. Millions of people battling the bottle have found help through this quiet organization, which is free of charge and open to anyone. And the power of AA meetings, where members find the courage to open up to each other, derives from a basic respect. Everyone has suffered, everyone has made wrong turns, and everyone possesses remarkable inner strengths to be uncovered. Here's Mike, a 27-year-old who works in the software industry. It certainly was a, I guess you could say a tumultuous uh, early childhood. You know, my parents had me when they were young. You know, my earliest memories were ones of, you know, kind of instability, um, uncertainty, you know, mistrust. Um, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, that, that shaped kind of the way I saw the world, you know, as, as, as I grew older. Mike was born in the former Soviet Union and moved as a child to the United States. In the early years, his family traveled around a lot. They were learning a new language, trying to assimilate. He has now lived many years in the Boston area. I always felt um, I had something to prove, again, um, for whatever reason internally, um, I had this thing that, you know, I can't feel, um, you know, equal on equal footing with people. I either feel less than, you know, or, uh, or I have to feel twice as good as you. You know, my sneakers have to be twice as expensive and, and that sort of thing. Um, and I think largely it, it had to do with, you know, with ego and, and a lack of humility. And I don't know, you know, it's this chicken or the egg. I think there are certain things within me that existed long before, um, you know, addiction came into my life um, and and one of the characteristics was this inability to be satiated and, and really the other one was inability to delay instant gratification. 
even when it's in my own best interest. It's not hard to fall into this trap, especially in a society where patience and calm reflection are seldom encouraged, while seductive advertising glamorizes immediate pleasure and satisfaction. But addictive behavior is complex, related both to a person's internal psychological makeup and the social influences around them. People get into trouble with alcohol and other drugs for different reasons and in many ways. Here's the story of an educator who grew up in the Boston area. Half a life ago, at age 30, she got sober in AA. We'll call her Lauren. I think when I was really little, I was pretty happy. But after a fairly short while, I started having a sense that something was wrong. I later discovered that there were problems in the family that I nobody talked about because uh, partly of the, the time when this all of this was happening and partly because of the culture of my family. But, you know, for a little kid, if something's wrong, it can't possibly be people like your parents because you need them. So it pretty quickly turns to the ex- the assumption that it's you. So I, thinking way back, don't remember much of my life when I was little where I didn't think something was wrong with me. So a lot of that feeling led to both fear, being frightened that somehow if people really knew who I was, they wouldn't want to be around me um, because there was this wrong thing about me. And so I sought all kinds of ways to hide. And I hid in books. I pretty young started hiding in food. I hid in taking things um, as though somehow there would be some way of easing this feeling. From an early age, you know, I go, I'm zero to smitten in 3.2 seconds with everything. It was you know, pedal to the metal with anything I do. You know, I picked up the piano at five. I haven't put it down, you know. I picked up a skateboard, still do that. Guitar, you know, I picked up substances and, you know, you almost have to pry it out of my cold, dead fingers, you know. Um, I just stick with things, you know. But I was very adept at living a double life, you know. So through college, you know, full-blown addiction, you know, was already there. And this was the explosion of, you know, Oxycontin and Percocets, um, um, which, you know, I, w- I was always recreational with, but then it stepped up, you know, in college. And a lot of my friends who ultimately, um, you know, got swept up with it as well. And it hit the middle class much harder, you know, than the previous, you know, the heroines. And, it, you know, the, the tragedy of it all was it was ultimately a bridge to, you know, the heroin and, and the other things. Um, addiction for me, it's the same whether I gamble my money away or, you know, promiscuity or uh, drugs, alcohol, all of that ultimately leaves me um, empty spiritually. I'm prone to say that my drug of choice is more, um, and it doesn't really matter what, because I I really believe I can become addicted to pretty much anything. Um, I define myself as an alcoholic because although alcohol was by no means my only the only substance I abused, um, when I drank, I drank to get drunk. And the very first time I drank, I was very clear. I'd had disappointing news about something, and I remember very vividly thinking, oh, well, a good way of responding to that would be to go get drunk. And I'm not sure I'd ever really drunk much of anything before that, but I went home, 
it was later at night. I was, you know, I was uh, still in college, but it was the summer. And I went home, and I went into my parents' liquor cabinet and drank a little bit of everything. And after that, I was never, ever, ever able to drink gin again because it just was the one taste that lingered. But I just remember sort of staggering upstairs and flopping on the bed and passing out. Now, I don't think most people, the first time they have a drink, do so with the explicit intention of getting as drunk as they can. And I told myself, well, I'll never do that again. Didn't exactly happen that way. At first, I liked to uh, shoplift. It escalated to doing things that were, uh, you know, ever more desperate. It's difficult for me even now to go into the details of kind of um, the things I did because by no means am I proud of it today. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of um, crime, you know, robbery and, and violence and that sort of thing. I mean, I, I've always just felt restless. I've always felt like I should be, you know, somewhere else doing something else at some other time. Um, and the only time I'm happy is the anticipation of, and as soon as I'm there, I need to go somewhere else. And I always needed danger in my life. So I had to stay up at all, all hours of the night. And when I was in situations either of danger or you know heavy intoxication under the influence of whatever it may be, um, there was a moment, you know, and for a long time when the substances worked, um, that they gave me, you know, they gave me peace, you know. I wasn't prey to misery or depression, you know, to borrow words from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That, that when it worked, it retur returned me or at least gave me the um, impression of wholeness. You know, I felt okay. You know, I felt comfortable in my own skin. Um, but as quickly as it came, you know, it vanished. And, um, as, you know, as things progressed, less and less so. So I needed more and more to feel, to feel okay. People turn to intoxicating substances as a way to alter their mood and often to transcend uncomfortable feelings. At its core, the quest to transcend is a profoundly healthy impulse. It can draw people out of isolation and it can inspire deep spiritual realization. But transcendence can also take forms that are quite detrimental. And in recovery from addiction, people learn how to sort through complicated feelings and choose healthy ways to respond. Again, here's Lauren. An awful lot of people I know who end up alcoholic and addicted to other stuff are incredibly attuned and sensitive to others and don't have very well-developed capacity to screen out what is someone else's stuff and what's ours. And so I know that when someone else was angry or agitated, I just took it all in, and I didn't have very good filters. And so sometimes that just got to be too much. Um, it was like I felt too much. And the only way I could find to cope with that was to sort of buffer it. I worked in a bar for two years, and because everybody there drank a lot, 
um, and would hang out after work and stay way after hours drinking, you know, my behavior didn't stand out. Alcohol reached a point, and again tied in with things like food, where I realized that I, I just couldn't stop. It meant that I hid more and more. I found that uh, I felt more and more desperate and more and more frightened. There was just the constant sense that I have a secret and I can't tell anyone, and it's disgusting and terrible, and I, it makes me a terrible person. And uh, certainly the sense of it being a moral issue, that I should be able to just stop. And I can remember people I knew saying, well, why don't you just exercise a little more willpower? And I used to just feel so helpless when people would say that. I kept doing what I was doing, you know, because, again, um, fear never could do it for me. You know, consequences never could do it for me. Um, you know, I know the judge in certain towns pretty pretty well, you know, um, along with the law enforcement officers. Um, the thing is, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of breaks both from the legal system, you know, um, because they saw some potential that, that I didn't see. But ultimately, you know, even they got fed up with me. And um, so I was sent away. And then, you know, to the place I went to actually um, – you know, in in intake, um, you know, I made a really bad decision, um, you know, to, to in effect, you know, bring things in because they were, you know, to medically detox myself off of the prescription, you know, medications I was on. They saw it as, you know, yeah, contraband. So anyway, um, where I was sent to um, administrative segregation, which is like, uh, I guess, the jail within the jail or what have you. But it's 23 hours lockdown, um, you know, by yourself, uh Solitary, yeah. Things just kept going downhill, and I got more and more miserable, and I started trying. I thought, well, maybe if I go to therapy. And the only problem was I never told the therapist what I was really doing, so it made it a little hard for her to actually help me with what was the real problem. I tried acupuncture. I tried hypnosis. I mean, I tried every blessed thing to try to stop the combination of eating and drinking and sort of excess, and I, I just couldn't. There were some things I was really afraid of. I mean, there were certain drugs I knew that looking at the way I smoked cigarettes, at the way I handled drinking, and certain other drugs, there were certain things that I knew if I picked them up, I would be dead because I would I, – I was I – was, I didn't even know that I had the word addiction in my vocabulary at the time, but I knew that there were some things that when I got caught up in them, I couldn't stop. In the first two and a half weeks, I didn't sleep a lick. Um, medications I was coming off of, was, it was tough. It was tough. Um, I was falling apart. So, you know, with that lack of sleep, you know, I couldn't eat really um, a lot of not happy things, not pleasant. But it does things to my mind, you know, and whether it's, you know, because of the detox, I started to have, you know, what you could call a spiritual type uh, of, of awakening. I mean, I remember just being on, on the ground, you know, in the cell and watching the stars and just bawling, you know. You know, you reach that jumping off point, right, that, that um, you know, I hear talked about. You know, I just couldn't go down that path, you know, any longer. Um, but I didn't also know how I could make it stop either. 
without question, the hardest thing I've had to confront in, in, in my life, probably the hardest thing I'll ever have to confront. You know, it, it, it is and continues to be my Mount Everest. Hearing two members of Alcoholics Anonymous tell the stories of their battle with addiction and valuable life lessons they gained along the way. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, please visit humanmedia.org. Again, here's Lauren, a member of AA with long-time sobriety. I remember an acupuncturist at one point saying to me, well, you know, I've, I've worked with somebody else who has some problems similar to yours, and maybe she'd be willing to talk to you. I said, I was desperate. I said, okay, you know, can you ask her? She gets hold of this woman who says she'll talk to me, so I call her, and she talks to me a bit. And, you know, the first words out of her mouth stunned me because she was saying, oh, yes, I did this and I do this. And I'm like, you don't say that out loud to other people. But it was the first time I had ever heard anybody being just flat out honest about their addictions and their alcoholism. I felt as though a door had opened. I felt as though I could actually breathe. And then she said, I have to go to a meeting. And I thought, well, she must be at work. So she said, but you can call me tomorrow. And she told me the time to call her. And at that point, I was so desperate, I was willing to do anything she said. Um, Had I known how to do handstands and had she told me to do handstands up the main street, I would have done it. So I called her the next day and we talked some more. And I told her scraps of what was going on for me. I certainly wasn't ready to start divulging. And, but I, I, everything she said, I just thought, that's me. That's me. And I think that's part of what the 12-step programs do. It's one of the first places I had ever had the experience of people are describing feelings and behaviors, and I know what they mean. And if I tell them what I feel and what I've done, Somebody in there has done it, too. Anyway, this went on for a couple of days, and then she kept cutting off each conversation by saying that she had to go to a meeting. And I kept thinking, boy, she has to go to a lot of meetings for work. I I had no idea. I, I knew nothing, nothing about AA or any other program. So I guess my persistence finally persuaded her that I was halfway serious because she suggested I meet her at a meeting. I said, okay, and this was at a local hospital. I went there, and I walked, and it was a speaker meeting, and somebody was telling their story. And if I had felt I could breathe before, at this point, I felt like I I am in the right place. I'm just in the right place. Here is where I can tell the truth. And for somebody who had spent so many years hiding and lying, to be in a place where I felt I could tell the truth... It was like crossing a threshold and knowing that if I went back across that threshold, I would always know that that threshold existed. She became my first sponsor, and she was one of those old guard folks who said, you know, you call me every day, 
You make a commitment that you're not going to pick up. You go to a meeting every day. And I said, yes, ma'am. In 12-step programs like AA, a sponsor is a fellow member who serves as a mentor, someone to confide in during the awkward moments of withdrawal and the longer-lasting challenges of adjusting to a more emotionally balanced way of life. For almost everyone who's come out the other side, the process is rigorous. Change is earned at the price of self-reflection. For Mike, who we heard from earlier, as for many people in early recovery, the road at times has been bumpy and subject to occasional relapse. Although he's put together long stretches of continuous abstinence from alcohol and other drugs. For me, it had to become, a, you know, a, a very personal journey. You know, I had to start really getting honest about the causes and conditions. And let's be honest, I knew nothing about it. You know, I, I could spout off portions of the book that I've memorized, but I needed someone to take me through it. And that's really when the change happened. I at least began in earnest, you know, to surround myself with people on a different wavelength than the people I used to run with. So, you know, 40 days go by, I forget, it's like, a, you know, I fatten up a little bit, I feel a little better, I get moved to the main block, and, and still I am better. That's it, I'm never going to do this again. Family's coming back in my life and, and, and so forth. Um, you know, when I get released, not, not too, too long after that, um, you know, I thought, that's it, I've learned, you know, and again, my self-will hijacks, and I kind of, it starts telling me what to do more than I tell it in, in sort of a, some weird sense. I know I, self-will is my will, but um, it starts calling the shows, you know, it's like uh, caging a 300-pound gorilla, you know, and then, you know, it starts looking at you with those loving eyes, you know, and saying, come on, I won't, I won't stampede around and destroy your house again. Just let me out. I remember last, you know, and so you get convinced by it, you know. My will is like that, both good and, and bad. But I get out, you know, so I've read it, and I know it, and I know the conditions of the disease. I know that, and the day I get out, you know, it dawns on me that I should call, you know, a person I used to uh, associate with just to see how they're doing. But really, they also, you know, they sold drugs, let's be honest. Um, and I was lying to myself, which is always where it began for me. Um, you know, I've been lying to myself for a long, long time. So needless to say, that day I was right back where I was saying what just happened, you know, almost in a blink of an eye. It needed to happen because, um, you know, I I remember it being um, a snowstorm that day as well. I, I'd gotten out of the courthouse, out of the jail, and I had my stuff and shorts on. It was snowing. It was like February. My, I was supposed to run to my grandma's house, like, which was like down the street from, from where I was released. And I somehow made it there like within two hours and I was already high, you know, again. That first year, it was sort of like being an adolescent and getting hit with all these new feelings and I didn't even know what they were. That doesn't mean that I was a recovered person overnight uh, because I had, you know, at that point, up until then, my whole life had been involved in highly addictive behavior. And that included relational sort of addictions. And boy, if it was the wrong kind of guy, I went right for him. If he was unavailable, even more so. You know, it was sort of like going for the impossible um, and having no sense that I should have been hearing Danger Will Robinson, Danger Will Robinson, when I felt certain kinds of attraction on many fronts. 
So, I mean, it was sort of all things that, that signaled danger. I didn't know how to recognize it. It took a while. And, um, and I think going back to the idea that, that the, the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions talks about instincts out of balance, I think for me um, the process of sobriety has been learning what balance looks and feels like. If I have a little red flag go up, or a little uh-oh feeling, I now know that that's probably something I should pay attention to. A therapist is helping me unravel, you know, some of the the core issues. I know that in looking at, you know, and beginning to sit down and look at my life and what fueled it, you know, it became painfully clear that at the core of my problem, drugs aside, if I never even, if they didn't even exist in this perfect universe, I was a selfish, you know, self-centered, conceited, um, distrustful person, you know, and it wasn't a, a pleasant thing to see. And all of those things were unified by one. I was afraid, you know, I was always afraid. It goes back to my childhood, you know. I feared that I wasn't going to get enough. I feared that you're going to take it away from me. I feared that, you know, I'm not going to be okay. Um, fear, fear-driven existence. To see oneself more clearly, to get down to root causes, to understand what's driving self-destructive behaviors, the Alcoholics Anonymous program offers tools for looking inside. An essential resource is attending the free AA support groups located in virtually every city and town. Members also benefit from carving out quiet time for contemplation. I do consider this a spiritual practice. And I think the reason it's called practice is because you have to practice it. I just sort of feel that there's something I speak to. I still ask to keep true. Um, I use things like the serenity prayer. Uh, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. And at the beginning of every meeting, if there's a period of silence, I will sort of ruminate on each word of that. A fundamental principle of AA is connection. Partly, that's making contact with one's own higher power or inner compass. And partly, it's forming a bond with others in recovery. People caught up in addictive behavior are almost always emotionally isolated and sometimes socially isolated. The AA Fellowship helps them break out of isolation and find acceptance in a compassionate community of people who directly understand the struggle for sobriety. A sponsor is someone who's been sober longer than the person they're sponsoring and whose only responsibility is to share their experience and whatever strengths they've developed and to try to transmit hope. So if somebody comes into the program and they're new and they're frightened all the time, I can say, I know what that's like, and here's what it felt like for me. And I can also tell you that if you keep doing the work, it will go away. I've derived the most happiness in my life. You know, I felt the best when I've given something to others without expecting anything in return. I mean, my grandpa recently passed away, and, um, you know, I spent one day a week with my grandma um, and we talk you know she tells me stories that she never even like bothered to, to tell me which is which is a great thing um, and that's just really a small example it's 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 hard to kind of express you know I, I see a, a woman struggling with groceries an older one you know I'll help her I just wherever it is you know 
it's late at night and I'm tired. I see like a tiger commercial on TV. You know, I adopted a tiger, you know, just like little things um, help me more than anything else. You know what I've sought. And not only that, I think it's contributed to ensuring against, you know, um, going back to who I was because it's very simple arithmetic. If I was a selfish, self-centered person, then selflessness and giving is the antidote for that. That's what neutralizes my volatile nature, you know, and I think it's, you know, Notre Dame has, you know, a saying, you know, in Paris on the cathedral. I, I think it's translated something like, and I always liked it. Um, and now it actually kind of ma makes sense to me. You know, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. I sought my brother and I found all three. You know, that means something to me today. It really, really does. Mike and before him, Lauren, members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Roy and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Breaking the Cycle, is Humankind Program number 197. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org, and at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.